Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the shenanigans. It was the early 80s, and sex was still a good way to meet new people. The disappointment. Now that's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. And the self-confidence. I'm six foot, three inches tall, and maintain a very consistent panda bear shape. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your old pal Spearsy. And Brad in New York. And today we visit with the co-founder of the 80s alt-rock band Gene Loves Jezebel. It's our interview with Michael Aston. Stuck in the 80s is now a listener-supported podcast. Yes, Gene might love Jezebel, but Steve and I love patrons. That's why we've partnered up with Patreon.com. Join up and enjoy exclusive bonus content, VIP Zoom happy hours, and more. Just go to Patreon.com slash Stuck in the 80s Podcast. Hey gang, I've been having a lot of fun lately talking to the musicians who will be playing on board the 2022 Voyage of the 80s Cruise. Brad, you got a uh, sound effect for me? <laughs> I love that. I never, it never gets old, my friend. Uh, uh, one, one trick pony. <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago, uh, you might remember I chatted with John Easdale from Drama Rama. Mm. So good. And, and this week, I got a chance to talk with Michael Aston, who is the co-founder of Gene Loves Jezebel, along with his. Uh, can you call him an estranged twin brother, Jay? Yeah, it pains me to see that happen with twins as the father of twins, but I understand how yeah. these things can happen. This is a fun chat. We do not talk about the legal problems between Michael and Jay. Instead, we get some really interesting stories about the early days of the band, and uh, we get to find out the story of how their song Desire ended up on the soundtrack to a John Hughes movie, She's Having a Baby. It's an amazing soundtrack, and Michael has a really fun story about how the song shows up on the soundtrack, and even that he makes a short cameo in the movie itself, which I didn't know. No, I didn't either. I mean, I keep meaning to, to find the movie online. I don't have that. Of all the John Hughes movies I have, I don't have that one on DVD, I don't think. And you don't see it on streaming all that often. Yeah, I've seen it once, and I know I complained about it on the podcast. <laughs> It's a great. It's just so emotionally manipulative. It's sort of based on his real life early in his career when he came, he got started in the ad business in Chicago, and that's kind of what that movie starts off as. So it's kind of an it's it's a nice little look. It's an underrated gem. Um, <sighs> I feel like they just it's a cheap out to have the wife in danger during delivery, and it's just I don't know. It just seems like a cheap stunt to me. I don't know. I I, I will always hold it in high regard, but. I remember the first time I saw it and hearing the soundtrack and hearing Desire for the first time thinking, what band is this? Because I, unlike you, I, you know, I didn't have the benefit of growing up with K-Rock in my backyard. So this, this song, and we didn't really have college radio in Florida. So this is my first exposure. Nice. Anyway, there's this really kind of, not an awkward moment, but we're very early on in the interview. Michael and I are talking. And he's talking about the cruise, and he mentions he's really looking forward to going to Barbados. 
<laughs> well, you're going to have to swim for that one, Chief. Yeah. And I almost stopped him at the time and said, well, I don't think we're going to Barbados. But at the same time, I really want to see his band play. So I'm not going to throw any roadblocks up in the way. <laughs> He's probably thinking of the lineup for 2021 mm. when Barbados was on the itinerary. A port of call, as it were. Yeah. It's changed. For 2022, it's... I hope Michael's equally excited about seeing the Bahamas, St. Martin, or uh, St. Thomas, which he should be because St. Martin and St. Thomas are amazing. I mean, St. Martin has two A's right in a row. Yep. That's that good. It I just mean, does that for the that fun and book. Aardvark. That and Aardvark are the only two I can think of. Um, I'm sure there's others. Is there not? I don't know. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will correct me. Great haste. Yes, I'm, they're all That's typing away as we speak. Brad um, at SAT80s.com. Bring it on. <laughs> by, the, by the way, I think... I, I know we talk about the cruise from time to time. I don't think we've mentioned lately that with the whole COVID situation, you know, uh, some people's travel plans have changed. Obviously, requirements for for traveling international is always in flux. But what has happened is a a nice number of cabins have opened up on the 2022 cruise. So keep your eye on their website, uh, www.the80scruise.com, because if you're still interested in going, the chances are pretty good that you can join us for the cruise this spring. So getting back to the interview... Michael is, he's a trip. He's a real trip. He's super frank about a lot of the things you ask him about. And just, I loved his take on the, what I'll call the jukebox shows where they play three songs, you know, and then you unplug and you run, you run off stage. (laughs) So once again, you talk to somebody and it just gets me so psyched to see them perform live on cruise and to see a full set, not just the three song and get out. Yeah. These are the shows that to me always make the cruise special because you you find a band where you know one or two songs or three songs and you get to hear a full set and suddenly like this is what happened with me with Naked Eyes I knew two songs I went and saw them perform live and now I'm obsessed with them so weird right anyway yeah. <laughs> it's a fun interview after the interview we have the usual seggies including a PPTMN and a very amusing letter from Dave Dirt but for now Sit back and enjoy this interview with Michael Aston of Gene Loves Jezebel. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Steve. Uh, we're talking today because your band is on the 2022 voyage of the 80s cruise. Is, is this going to be your first cruise? Yeah, it's the first time I've ever been uh, on a cruise. Uh, I've never desired to go on a cruise, and uh, when I saw Barbados, and uh, they'd pay me to do it, and uh, they'd feed my, and I could bring uh, a couple of my kids, I thought, hell, why not? Let's do this. <laughs> but it looks like it's a fun time, I and mean, well, how, how couldn't it be? Two long sets, um, host a couple of parties, I mean, it's going to be a joy. So I'm asking, I'm still waiting for them to send me a bill, but there we go. <laughs> 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 no, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It, it seems like. I, why not, right? Is there something in particular you're looking forward to doing that week? Uh, well, t- a lot of nothing, to be honest with you. Um, I was going to ask, can you rehearse on the boat? Because uh, we need like 90 minutes of material. We got till March to get it together. But I want to go back to our early material and work all the way, you know, 30 years of work, you know. So I think that'll be, I mean, that's a fantastic opportunity. Most of the things these days, aside from my club shows, so I can do what I want. Or 80 shows, and they tend to want you for 15, 20 minutes, you know, and uh, you can only play four or five songs, which I've 
you know, I've always thought it was a waste of money and a waste of time, to be honest with you. But uh, if people want to pay that, fine. But uh, I much prefer to have a full performance. You know, let's get, if we're going to get dressed up and look the part, let's let's play a full, you know, a full set, full performance. So that's what I'm most looking forward to about that, this cruise, to be honest with you. And that's what really turned me on about it. I've seen one of your short sets before. I, I've seen the band perform in, I think it was Las Vegas for one of the Lost 80s weekends. Right, right. There you go. I, I always thought that would that must be a tough thing to do because you've got like seven bands that they're trying to cram on the stage. And I, I can't imagine it was much fun for the musicians. It's a waste of time. I mean, the time you dress up, you have to rush on the stage because it's all so tight. Everyone's playing their 10, 15 minutes. And when the headline is only playing 20 or whatever it is, it's so you, the time you walk on stage before you know it, you're walking off and it's like, wow, it's, it's almost like you've been, you know, sexually assaulted and left in an alley. You know, it's, uh, I can't, I don't recommend it. I love to perform, but I'll be quite honest with you. It's not my, it's not an ideal world for me. I love to play a set, you know, yeah. crowded people into your music and you're playing for an hour, an hour or more. You meet them, you have a few drinks, you know, it's uh, that's my idea of a show. You know, so. Sure. There, there's a lot of other UK acts that are on the bill for 2022. Uh, ABC, Human League, John Parr, Dire Straits, Legacy, Modern English, Johnny Hates Jazz. It's an amazing lineup, to be quite honest with you. you know, um, it's very diverse. I've played with one or two of those bands in the past, but uh, there's many of them I've never played with or, or, or even seen, not since the 80s anyway, so... I'm, I'd love, love to see Human League. I'm a big fan of their early material. Uh, yeah, I know the guys in Modern English. I know Flock really well. I think Drama Armor are playing too. Oh, Am yeah. Right? They, they will yeah, be, yes. Yeah. So I know those guys really well. We're good friends. So uh, that's going to be fun. Sure. I just talked to John Easdale the other week. So and we had we had a conversation, the same type of interview that we're having. He's, a, he's such a nice guy. He's a lovely guy, yeah. yeah. Uh, salt of the earth. Actually, the whole band's great. The lo- loveliest people you'll ever meet, you know. And they always bring a great show. I mean, it's <laughs> it's basically the uh, the 80s who, you know, they really go for it. It's pretty spectacular. Is there is there any sort of ongoing kinship you think that you bands have that got their start together, like in a particular region or music scene? No, I, the weird thing is, I mean, in the day, I think of probably true of any generation. You don't really speak to other bands because they're competitors, you know. Um we did a whole tour with New Order and Echo and the Bunnymen, and I don't think we exchanged one word the entire tour. But it wasn't born of contempt. It's it basically insecure, insecurity and uncompetition. But later in life, the last 20 years, I've got to know, you know the guys from Flock, as I said, the guys from Dramarama, all the bands I've played, the 80s shows, the When in Rome's, you know, so... You know, Bow Wow Wow. You, you just hang out with people now, and it's... Uh, that's one thing about those shows that is good. It's all sociable backstage. You got you have dinner and there's wine and there's beer and everybody's chatting and laughing. So uh, that's that's one of the better aspects of uh, being an old man and doing these eighty shows, I guess. Yeah. Now, Gene Love Zesbo came from Wales, correct? Mm-hmm. Originally, and yeah. Everything I know from Wales comes from watching the Netflix series The Crown. So, oh. which which means I don't know anything. <laughs> But I've never seen the crown, but I know what it's about. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not interested in the monarchy, you know. So, <laughs> but I, I know, I'm, 
my, my wife is, for example, and all Americans seem to be Anglophiles, or I can see, you know, they have a totally distorted view of England, you know, this beautiful rolling hills and, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches and <laughs> everyone will have cucumber sandwiches and be very polite. That's not England. <laughs> <laughs> A bunch of bastards. <laughs> I, I, I know that a lot of amazing artists came from Wales, including uh, uh, Badfinger, The Alarm, Tom Jones, and even uh, John Cale from Velvet Underground. Yeah, we work with John Cale. Isn't that wild? Well, that's uh, crazy, man. He's, a, he's such uh, a legend. He kind of almost discovered us. He actually made us hip because uh, we were on Beggar's Banquet or Situation 2 at the time, and we played the ICA, this uh, left field concert art gallery and uh he came to see us and loved us and asked to work with us so he we flew off to new york and recorded with him uh, we actually played a couple of shows with him too in fact i played with all the velvet underground with the exception of lee reed so, oh wow he's not amazing i mean a band that i love you know so yeah but uh yeah we had a great time in new york he, we didn't get much done because he was high as a kite 99.9 percent of the time and completely blew our minds you know because we were just innocent welsh boys we'd never even been on a plane to, uh anywhere so suddenly we have flown into New York in the dead of winter, you know, five below zero. Absolutely hilarious. But at the time, it was uh, not so not so hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but what a trip. Danceteria in New York. I don't know if you remember that. It's a great club. Um, interesting time. Early 80s was a great time, you know. I, I can't imagine that a lot of bands that formed about the time you did must have had Velvet Underground as a big influence. Oh, absolutely. I mean... It, Running, I would said to everybody that it doesn't really matter if you're not terribly good a player, you know, as long as you're creative, that yeah. anything is possible. I mean, look what came out of Velvet Underground, you know, so many great bands, the Bunny Man, Jesus and Mary Chain, uh, just so many. I mean, I, to me, they're, they're the precursors of, they're the manifesto that became punk rock. It's basically just do it, you know, uh, just play, you know, to hell with the guitar solos and all that. They were the freshest band the most alternative when everyone else was singing about love and you know peace and the, you know, the depths of murder you know they were singing about you know sadomasochism you know heroin heroin <laughs> uh, transgender i mean it's amazing you know yeah it's, it, it they just taught they, they taught you you know that's like a few other bands actually like the kinks and whatever else that you could really sing about anything you know as long as they carried a melody and it was intriguing people were into it, it they they not everyone's a bloody a carpenter's fan, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. I grew up with the carpenters and Abba, and I hated those bands so much. I swear to God, I don't. I mean, I grew up. I grew up listening to Kiss, so I don't. I don't know what kind of band I would have formed if I was in a. Yeah, Kiss was an American thing. Yeah, they were nothing. Same as Aerosmith, they were nothing in the UK till I would say the eighties. You know, maybe the late eighties. Yeah. So in the seventies, we you know we had the Who and Led Zeppelin. We didn't really care about the American knockoff bands, you know. So <laughs> it's, it, it is so weird the difference because I don't think I'd even seen the Who or even heard maybe two Who songs until they did their farewell tour back in like eighty five. Yeah. yeah, which Just, like I saw Zeppelin uh, twice in seventy five, and I geez. saw Queen on their first tour, and I saw Deep Purple in the early days, and. Um, I saw all these brands in their prime when they all had, you know, natural pigment in their hair, if they got hair at all now. And people, <laughs> and now they're doing these massive tours and none of them can sing anymore or play anymore. I mean, they're, they're old men. I'm sorry. I'm not being mean. You know, it's the way it goes, you know, but I wouldn't want, I didn't want to go see, uh, I had no interest in see, you know, I mean, I'd watch Jimmy Page anywhere he played, but I had no, I, no desire to see 
the likes of Plant because they lost their voices like 30 years ago. You know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's not being mean. That's just the way it goes. You know, we all lose an octave. Yeah. There's that old joke about how, you know, Mick Taggart is never going to be dancing around on stage when he's 50 years old singing Satisfaction. They said 40. Lester Bang said that. And he was wrong. He was, yeah. what, what, 80 now? He's got to be close. You know? Yeah. I mean, if I'm 64, he's got to be at least 15 years older than I am, you know, because I remember sure. him when I was a kid, you know. So. Yeah. So, but he still do. I mean, it's a cliche, but he's doing it. He does it well, you know. Um, he's something of a pastiche, you know. It's like parody, but uh, I don't know what, why he wants to do it. Uh, maybe he's got lots of blue pills. Maybe that's <laughs> it. <laughs> so, so when you're seeing all these bands, I mean, these bands at the right at the these legendary bands at the beginning of their career, like like the Queens and the, and the Zeppelins and stuff like that. Was the, what was the original spark? Was there any spark from that that, that kind of led you to say, gosh, I, I, I need to, I want to be a musician. I want to form a band. Well, actually they put me off being a musician because they were actually very capable musicians. You know, they were great players. They'd, be, they'd been schooled, you know, through the blues and whatever else. Uh, skiff, you know, everyone knows the stories, you know. Like I said, go back to the likes of the Velvet Underground, you know, they, or maybe something like Astral Weeks, Van Morrison. That's what inspired me to want to do it, to be, you know, poetic, get the performance, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I saw Queen, Deep Purple, the, they were playing the venues that we were playing, you know, like a thousand people tops and they weren't even sold out shows. So it's it's they, they actually all took off with the exception of like zeppelins who were massive in america and whatever else most of those bands were just club bands relatively you know and band-aid the likes of that's what made it take all off you know when i came to america the first time of 84 i remember our first tour was actually in 85 and i remember going around the country and all they played was the fucking doors led zeppelin you know stone I'm like, who the fuck listens to this shit anymore? That's generations ago. But it was everywhere. And I'm convinced that's why those bands became, because you could not escape them, you know. Even my kids know all, every Rolling Stone song ever written. You know? So <laughs> we didn't have a chance. There's only a few bands that actually escaped that mega rock, you know. Yeah, well, so, co- corporate yeah. rock. Corporate rock had that super hold on the radio stations back then. But I mean, yeah, your your band found a lot of luck with with college radio and probably also with K Rock out in LA. Yeah, right? the uh, college radio loved us. So I mean, they played the hell out of Immigrant, for example, and Desire was the number one single. I think it was eighty five. They played Discover, uh, and alternative radio was actually pretty small. It was like a, it was like Los Angeles. I think it was uh, Boston. You know, just small patches. It wasn't everywhere, so. We'd do our tours and we'd play the likes of Boston, sell it out for three nights, LA, sell it out for six nights. Then you play New Orleans, you're playing in front of 20 people, you know. Oh, jeez. So, but it's not a measure of who you are. That's just the way the business was. If you're not, if, if you're not being played on the radio in those days, you know, no one knew who you were. There was no internet. There was no YouTube. There was no, you know. Now you get exposure, but just by making a TikTok video, apparently, you know. Yeah. Which is wonderful in many ways, you know, but... Uh, it's just a different era, yeah. Well, I mean, MTV was there. I mean, was there a strategy? MTV was later. MTV came in for us. Yeah, 85 was there. And they actually embraced us, having said that. But we were the perfect uh, foil for MTV because we were so colorful. We had makeup, silks and satins. And, you know, we were all, we embraced it. We weren't the ugliest band that ever lived, you know. <laughs> you know? 
with two sexy twins, you know. So, and we were Welsh, so it was a bit of intrigue, you know. I can't imagine you, you mentioned the crown, you know. Well, there you are, you know. We, <laughs> we were the crown, you know. Yeah. He was the queen. He was the queen, and I was Princess Di. That was essentially what it was. <laughs> well, wasn't isn't isn't that kind of like I I I I heard an interview with you where you were talking about the origin of the band name and you were saying that someone had called your brother Jezebel and you were Jean and he right. wondered whether or not Jean loved Jezebel, which I thought was. Yeah. That's the fact. Yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. But my brother picked up on it. I let it go. I thought it was the silliest name on this planet. I'd named the band Slavarian and uh, I was quite happy with that, to be honest with you. Yeah. What so, was the, what was the background of that? I, I, I heard, I heard something involved socialism and the Welsh word for money. Yeah. 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 It's a basis of those two. We, we wanted to be a little, we wanted to draw on our Welsh roots, but we also wanted to make it as crazy as Joy Division or as wild as Bauhaus. We're dialing into the darker, you know, that, that, you know, the platforms, you know, we knew where our bread might be buttered, you know, so, so we kind of dialed into that. I think Joy Division would have been a huge influence on us, you know, sure, and pill sure. and pill, um, at least in, in presentation, you know. I was watching videos this morning and I was watching a video of Martha Quinn from MTV interviewing you. I think it was mm-hmm. probably around 1985 and yeah. it was funny. Cause I got the impression someone had, had written the questions for her. <laughs> she even, she didn't quite know, uh, you know, you know, how to, you know, to talk how to, to people. Us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't either. I mean, Here's our level of our, our innocence. We thought we'd come to America, play a few shows. We'd never return. We had no desire to come here, play here, <laughs> let alone marry someone, be married 30 years and have five kids, you know. So, But I had no intentions of coming back. It was like, we come out, shag all your women, drink all your beer, you know, use all your drugs, and we're going home. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, that's pretty much how it worked out, to be honest with you. <laughs> What was it? What do you think the breakthrough moment was? What was the moment where you said, "Holy, holy crap! This is this is gonna, you know, be, be something. This is gonna be a career." Well, the goal was just a cliche. We really just we just wanted to play music. We were amazed that anyone would come to see us, let alone let us make a record. You know, so we just day by day, you know. So, uh, but I think with with the turning point was on the, when we made uh, our first couple of singles, and then John Peel gave us a session. So they started playing us and uh, we started building an audience in Europe. So the only reason we came to the U.S. was because uh, a tour in Italy had, had been uh, cancelled. It would have been our first tour in Europe. There'd been a riot in some soccer game, a European Cup final, when uh, a lot of Italian fans died. So it was a dangerous place for us to go. Or so they thought, so they wouldn't let us go. So I picked up the phone of a friend said I should give a, a, a lady in New York a call club called the dance interior and uh see if she'll have you there and i'm like who the hell is gonna have us in new york <laughs> <laughs> how who would know about us in, we didn't have a record deal we had nothing going there but i picked the phone up she said yeah come on over and that was that was the beginning yeah and that tied in with the john kale thing I, in, both things occurred at the same time wow so uh we came i mean we'd already had a, a great following in the uk so it wasn't just you know it's not like we had a big hit single and then people came to our shows we'd built up a an underground following, you know, a base, you know. So people would be waiting in their hundreds no matter where we played. I mean, I wish we could have filmed all that in that era because it's 
there'd be people camping on our doorstep of the flat we lived in Pimlico, you know. <laughs> so it was wild. We, we, we were treated as like rock stars, but no one knew who we were. But uh, the fans did. And they followed us all over the country, all over Europe. So the same crew, you know, 50, 60 of them. So it's crazy. You know, you, you, you're playing in Blinking Hamburg and there's a, a kid you just seen the night before in Sheffield, you know. You go, how the fuck did you get <laughs> And they'd hitchhike, they'd jump on trains, they'd sleep, you know, outside the venue, they'd sleep on bus stations. But they were committed, and I'm like, these people are insane. So, But there you have it. The, the song Desire, I think I heard it for the first time on the John Hughes movie, She's Having a Baby. Yeah. Is, is there a story behind how that song got included on the soundtrack? Well, because we were signed to Geffen. Um, Initially, we'd done it for Beggar's Banquet, or actually Situation 2, our first independent label, which is a, a subsidiary of Beggar's Banquet. They're the same label. But uh, we'd recorded it, and the first, the original version is the better version. You know, um, That's with the original guitar player, Ian Hudson. And it was written before uh, the other members of the band, the more well-known members, came in. They actually took all the glory from the guys who did all the work before it. But that's another story. They did a fine job. Um, so, yeah, we came. Uh, Geffen signed us. We know Geffen was. I knew that John Lennon was signed to it. And Elton John was. I thought, it must be okay. But let's go with them. So, <laughs> <laughs> But Relativity had supported us. And this independent like metal label had picked us up. And they'd supported us really well. I mean, they'd done a really good job with college radio and whatever else. Um and we'd released Desire and it was flying. The original Desire was flying. I mean, it was top of the indies and it was look, you know, looking to go into the billboards and all that thing. Then Geffen stepped in. And from what I've heard, relatively, we just pissed off. Damn, we did all the work and they've stolen our band. Uh, you know, that's that's the way of the world, I guess, out here. Um, so then we came here and we recut it. Uh, you know, we did a great pop version of it. Um, people loved it. Got number seven, I think, of the dance chants. Uh, it was a breakthrough song for us, a great video. You know, the guy Jeff Stein did a great video. Um, we'd never really shot any videos. The other videos we'd done had been done with like friends or a couple of uh, kids I knew from St. Martin's School of Art in London, which my first wife had gone to. So it was very much on a, you know, do it yourself basis, you know. And then suddenly we were, we were in a budget and they're spending a quarter of a million dollars on a video. I mean, his soundtracks were always kind of revered, at least among American teenagers. I mean, I think, I don't well, think he broke was... a lot of bands, didn't he? He'd like yeah. simple. Uh, was it what's the song they did i mean psychedelic first a lot of great bands actually yeah yeah i mean it's good yeah. company to to be on a john hughes soundtrack yeah. i'm actually in that movie yeah I'm oh you are where are you in that movie the very end they it's a really funny story because uh we're a band that really we played hard we partied hard as any other band that ever lived so we played i think an, L, an la show and the manager said come on guys you got to go down to to paramount they want you to uh, Paramount Studios they wanted you to uh, be part of their movie and all the band said no the only one who said yes was me well they couldn't wake the rest of the other people the other members of the band up is, is the truth but I get up you know <laughs> so I walked to Paramount I met John Hughes and I uh, met Stuart Copeland um, oh, and so I mean I would say I met I said hi how are you fan of the band that's meeting you know it's still you know you're in the presence of greatness, you know. So, <laughs> at least I think greatness an amazing drummer. Yeah. Um, uh, so, he, he says, well, all you got to do is think of a name. I'm, I'm going to ask you, well, what are you going to name your child? And I, I thought, God, I, 
I got to make a name up because, you know, the more obscure the name or the more interesting the name, the more chance they're going to use me in the movie. So I just, the top of my head said Winth- Winthorpe or Winthorpe, but it was a name that I'd never heard of. And, and, uh, and I did some research years later and there is actually a name, but I just thought they must know I'm just making shit up here. <laughs> but anyway, a few years later, it comes on TV and my, uh, my little boy, my younger son, he's probably four or five years of age. And I come up at the end and he absolutely, <laughs> he thinks he's seen the Wizard of Oz, you know. <laughs> it's like, what the hell is going on? And my wife laughed so hard. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it's two seconds. But uh, it, at the end of the movie, they ask a bunch of famous people of the time. The guy, sure. uh, who, yeah, what would you, what would you name a child? Yeah. And I'm, up, I'm in there with you know all the guys oh on Cheers, and so uh, I've got to watch it again. I, I know that movie. No, you got to don't well. blink, don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't know. I, you know, I, yeah, I, 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 I know the ending. On the way out, and so people are going to leave it, but it's yeah. there. No, I mean I've seen the ending a thousand times, but I just didn't know that you were one of those. I got, now I have to go back and watch it. And they so do a great job with the, uh, the the scene they put Desire in is phenomenal. So fair play to them, you know. And also the main actor in that, uh, do you remember his name? Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. So the first exposure we had to movie, he's in some movie. He's, he's a skateboarder, and I'm watching on in a, on a, like HBO, one of America, Showtime, one of those things when we're on a tour, and he, he's wearing a cow T-shirt. It's one of the first T-shirts we ever made. Oh wow. And I'm thinking, God, we must be totally hip if, if Kevin Bacon, you know, it's, it's the beginning of his career. It's not like he's a superstar. Yeah. So but I still. was like, I was totally chuffed. Little things like that, right? Yeah. So, well, I just, that, that shirt goes for like $800 on uh, eBay now, if you can find one. It's one of the oh most expensive God. shirts you can buy, you know. So I'm going to make a bunch more of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm, they're I'm, all my designs anyway, so I should have yeah. copyrighted them. Yeah, I'm I'm just godsmacked that you met John Hughes. I mean, he's like the well, just for a second again. Even then, even then, yeah, a second you know. with with you know, he's sort of like one of the well, patron was, saints of the '80s. Well, it was a bizarre thing because growing up in Wales and watching black and white TV with my mom, you see the you know, you see the the Metro Golden Mayor and the Lion and the, the Paramount Studios and the movies they show within the movies in that in the in that place. And actually to go there and be the walk through those gates is like, damn, what a trip this is, you know. <laughs> Colin Hay from Men at Work was once asked um, who he wanted to work with someday. And he said, Dolly Parton, which, oh, I, wow. which kind of blows my mind. So I have to ask you, out, outside of your genre of music, is there an artist or musician that, that you would be your dream collaborator? I'd love to work with Jimmy Page. How's that? I, I, I like me and me and I like Jimmy to have his acoustic guitar. And us, us to write uh, an acoustic record. That would be like my dream scenario, you know. Or maybe Neil Young. That's another great. You know? Ooh, that's a good pick. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of, a lot of my heroes. Uh, but even that, like uh, Colin, Colin said, I mean, Dolly Parton, that would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Bobby Gentry. How's that? I'm a, I'm a fan of country music, too. At least the old guys, you know. Yeah, of course. Well, most, of, most of them are dead, though. There's no one you could sure. really. Work. But I'd like to make like a Celtic, because Zeppelin were always they always had that Welshness about them. They, they had a love for Wales. You know, they did Zeppelin three was recording mostly in, in Wales, you know, Rockfield. We worked at Rockfield, which is a famous studio, which everybody worked at. And the day we worked there, it was like going, it was like Avalon, you know, we'd reach, Oh my God, you know, all those great records that are being made. Then suddenly we were recording in this place, which was really a dump. It was in the middle of the country, but lovely memories, you know, yeah. like when you're, when you're a fan, you can't imagine, you know, 
working or being in the same situations as your idols, you know, or the sure. people that you totally loved and respected, you know, the records you played a billion times, you know. Sure. So, is is there a quality about Wales that you think it imparts upon its musicians and the people who later go on to do great things? Is there something about it? Is it? I think the, it's, it's like I think that all the 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 smaller kind, like the Scottish, the Irish have it, uh, the Welsh have it in spades. Um, it's that your the Eng- England is the the primary force you know it's uh we're all outliers you know so you always feel like an underdog or you always feel like they regard you as less than them you know you have this inferiority complex so but it does force you into a kind of tribal thing and so you tend to uh be uh you know excited or by your past and your histories and the myths you know um so yeah, there is something special about it. This is a great sense of identity. You know, you can say the Welsh, you know, and you just say, it's Wales. It's like in England, there's so many you know subcultures in England. You know, you walk ten miles and the dialects change, but uh, and the and the and the cultures change. But in Wales, it's well, there's one. You know, you got the mountains that run to the sea, and uh, if you can't sing, you better get a job. You know, <laughs> and it has its own language too. It does, yeah, yeah. Do you know it? I don't know much of it. No. <laughs> We're from South Wales, but now it's it, it's taught in schools. But we know phrases, you know, "borada," "baramainin," but uh, you know, we, we weren't raised to speak it, you know. So, yeah, um, you're going to have a really great time on this cruise. I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person and and seeing finally a, a full set of Jean Loves Jezebel. Brilliant! Yeah, looking forward to meeting you, Steve, and uh, enjoyed this. It's, it's been fun. There you go. Michael Aston of Gene Lives Jezebel. Mm. I love the points you brought up about the band being from Wales and all of the other musical kind of legacy and connections there. Yeah. I was trying to get him to, to say, like, he actually did speak a little bit of Welsh to, to me, but I was hoping he'd be fluent because that would have kind of blown my mind. I'm, I'm so, uh, so weirdly obsessed with Wales lately. I don't know why. I was a little surprised that he couldn't. That just everybody I've ever met from Wales is so proud of that. Yeah. And, you know. His stories when he when we started talking about the Velvet Underground and his stories about playing with all of the members except for Lou Reed, that just kind of blew me away. That's crazy. And and speaking of that, did you notice that Apple TV has a documentary about Velvet Underground right now? I did. I haven't had a chance to to watch it. I've seen the trailer, and the trailer looks amazing. Seriously, if if you're if you love eighties music, especially you know the the beginning of eighties music, the bands that were there that kind of established the sound, and you have Apple. Uh, TV Plus or whatever it's called these days. Seriously, consider watch watching that documentary. Uh, like Michael said, the Velvet Underground it's, it's inspired a lot of what we hear in our Oh decade. my gosh, yeah. I mean, almost as much as Roxy Music, or maybe as much as Roxy Music. Yes. You know, that's often name-checked as a, as a kind of foundational band, but I think Velvet Underground is, is in there too. I, I, I never thought about his point of, you know, so many bands that I talk to, especially ones that are British, have always talked about the, the influence of the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. And here's a punk band where they didn't know how to play their own instruments, but they didn't care. The Velvet Underground was doing that before punk rock. As he says, the Velvet Underground kind of gave rise to punk rock in a way. 
Uh, yeah, they opened the door and someone walked through. Yeah. And that someone was Steve Spears. <laughs> Epic trash. Oh man, but I just I seriously, I mean I know I know you're not you're kind of hit or miss on it, but she's having a baby. I, I kinda want to go back and watch that again. I want to see his cameo, I'll tell you that. And yeah, and maybe I'll give it another chance. You know? can maybe you... it won't seem so emotionally manipulative now that my children are grown and out of the house. Yeah, I can see where maybe you'd be a little you know, <laughs> you kind of feel like it's a little personal you're just, there. You're just, you're just pulling the levers. It's it's cheap. Yeah. Come on, you're better than that, John Hughes. I don't know. I'm, I again, I'd love to be around him to be around him and maybe be able to ask him questions about it. Can you can you even imagine? Can it? Can the thought even process in your brain about meeting him in person? I I'm not sure I'd be able to uh, form cogent thoughts or complete sentences. Yeah, I I just probably stroke out, <laughs> and then I'd curl up on the floor and I'd cry. You know, it makes me want to curl up on the floor and cry. Um, pretty much anything, I'd imagine. Come on, say it. That's the worst transition ever. Say it. The Seggies. Steve, I know you're still recovering from that transition, so let me handle this. Those were the tuneful stylings of the listener mailbag. Oh, that's right. We're, uh, here's a segment where someone uh, writes this in, a story that they probably shouldn't have in hopes that we don't read it on the air, but we still do. <laughs> yes, we do. This letter, uh, to protect the parties involved, this letter will remain anonymous. It was written to us by someone whose initials are Dave Dirt. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. Buckle up, kids. Here we go. Hi, Stephen Brad. You both mentioned that you didn't curse or anything when you were the age of the kids in Stand By Me. Maybe I was just different, but at age 11, I was definitely already cussing like a sailor and smoked a little. I was even sneaking drinks out of the liquor cabinet once in a while. I didn't have any older siblings, but I guess maybe I got the smoking thing from kids at my school. It was your typical small town K-12, through and even in 1983-1984, it was still pretty much like the school and dazed and confused. Yes, that was set in 1976, but we were just that far behind the times. I remember one time in sixth grade, I was going with this one girl, who shall remain nameless. She was spending the night at a mutual friend's house. The other girl's house is a few miles away. My girlfriend wanted me to go over, and she said she'd do something to me that, quote, the older girls did. Okay, she actually came out and said, I'll give you a BJ, but I'm trying to keep this letter (laughs) PG-ish. I was ecstatic. I hopped on my spray-painted silver 10-speed and started riding over. I'm picturing like breaking away. Like, yeah. just like, the Italians are coming for you, kid. I remember <laughs> that there was a road that went by the railroad tracks. It would cut a good mile or two off the distance. So I turned down that road and started pedaling harder. Worth noting, it had rained a ton that week. I was so focused on getting over to, quote, do the things the older kids did, unquote, that I never even saw the mud puddle, encompassing the entire road. It was so deep and muddy, my old 10-speed hit that sucker and instantly stopped, hung there for a second, and then fell straight over on its side. My entire right side was covered in mud. Damn. So much for the sexy time. Luckily, there were no leeches. I tucked my tail between my legs, turned around, and pedaled home. Oh, well. Life went on, and a few years later, after graduating, she realized that she liked women as much as I did, so I guess everything worked out for the best. Still stuck in the 80s, and probably the mud, too. Dave Dirt. Wow. <laughs> so much that's a process. Ama- that's amazing. That's amazing. It's such a visual. Like you can picture it all happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm oh. telling you. <laughs> I can't believe. 
Oh my god. Oh Dave, that's a good one. We've overshared on this show before, um, but this It's always nice when other people do it for yes, us. Yes. By all means, friends of the podcast, please, more like this. This is this is classic. Oh my god. That just feels like something you can you could paint. Yeah, it does in your, in time and place. It's yeah. evocative of time and place, as I like to say. <laughs> as always, we love your letters. Just send them to podcast at sit80s.com. Please, please tell me now. Please, please tell me now. Hey, it must be time for Please, Please Tell Me Now, PPTMN, where we answer a question sent in from a listener. This one comes from Mike in Oz, Australia, I presume, right? Uh, either that or he's over the rainbow. Or it's also possible. Could be the prison from that HBO series. I don't know. I, just a lot of options. Let I us didn't know, really Mike. watch it. So, uh, I, for some reason, I keep watching Band of Brothers over and over again. Have we talked about this? I'm watching it for the first time. Oh, really? Yeah, and I have to kind of pick my spots on when to watch it. Like, I can't just come home from a long 12-hour day of work and plop down and watch a Band of Brothers episode. Like, I need to be emotionally prepared to watch yes. the show. It's dark. Oh my gosh, but it's so good. Yeah, yeah. I was I watched some of it this morning and it was uh Bastone. I watched the Bastone episode. Okay. Dark. Yeah, I think I just saw that one. Well uh, it's like episode five. Anyway, it's it just turned twenty. If you can believe twenty that. years old? Twenty. That's why it came to my attention because I saw a story about that. I'm like, how did I never see this? And then I realized, oh my kids were really little. I didn't have a lot of time to watch T V then, so yeah. but wow, it's good. Bastone is um, one of the things that gets me because my uh, my mom's dad was in World War II in the army. Okay, sure. And he was at Bastogne. He was at the Battle of the Bulge, and uh, I he died when I was pretty young. I, I don't too early for me to be asking questions about Battle right. of the Bulge and um, Bastogne. <laughs> so tell me, Grandpa. But my uncle, who's only nine years older than me, you know, cause mm-hmm. surprise, you know, of the family. He, you know, he, like me, really loves war movies and stories about World War II and stuff. He was always trying to get his dad to tell him the stories of s- serving at Battle of the Bulge and Bastogne, and he just wouldn't do it. Just yeah. it, was, it was so traumatizing to him. I, I can only imagine. I mean, my, yeah. it was funny because I was talking to my mom about watching Band of Brothers because she was asking me, "Hey, you have anything good for me to watch?" My mother is watching The Sopranos for the first time, which I find hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, I was asking her about Band of Brothers and she said, "No, she hadn't really seen it. She wasn't really that interested in it, but that I and I found out that her uncle uh, had served in the army in World War II and was a sharpshooter in Beston." Wow. Yeah, so now I want to look him up and see like what was his service like, you know, what his service record was. That, I mean, I, I never would have known that if I hadn't mentioned that I was watching the show to my mom. So that's that's what my uncle keeps trying to do is is find his dad's service records. He um, yeah. you'll you'll meet my uncle. He's he's one of the groomsmen. Oh. Uh, you guys will be up there in penguin suits together. I, and, I, I don't have to keep him on his best behavior, do I? Because I don't really do that. Doesn't drink. Doesn't. He's maybe had one drink in his entire life. There are other ways to perform mayhem than to have too much to drink. <laughs> I find that one usually leads to the other. Eh, you're not but, wrong. Uh, he's still very uh, committed to trying to find out what happened. And I, there's some story about having to fire mortars on your own position. I, it's, it's about the extent of that I've been able well, to. Well, I'll have to chat with him about that. Yeah, he'll be uh, eager to talk to you. So anyway. was, there a, was there a podcast we were recording, Steve? I forget. Anyway, that's all we got for this week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Next week when we talk about, <laughs> we talk about Vietnam. <laughs> Mike from Oz. 
writes us and he says, hey guys, a really entertaining interview with Drama Rama's John Easdale in episode 613. Why, thank you, Mike. I, I, we had, I had fun doing that one. Mike continues, I knew very little about him and the band, but found him to be genuine and engaging. Um, I only know the amazing song Anything Anything from the band. Surprisingly, I did not hear it from the album Cinema Verite, but actually from the soundtrack to 1988's A Nightmare on Elm Street for The Dream Master. You know, I had that on my list of questions to ask. (laughs) Did you really? Yeah, I was going to ask how that, you know... Did he have anything to yeah. do? You know, like, Did the label just package that up and send it over? Yeah, yeah because you just you never know what kind of story you're going to get when you ask that question. But that but it did help the song a lot. Mike continues, despite it being a substandard movie, yes, it was. <laughs> it did provide a surprisingly strong collection of songs featuring bands such as The Angels, Go West, The Vinnie Vincent Invasion, The Divinals, Blondie, and the aforementioned Drama-Rama Classic. So... Please, please tell me now, what movie soundtracks have you come to love despite the lackluster cinema experience you had to endure? Always happily stuck in the 80s, Mike and Oz. Hmm. Oh, good question. In 2008, we did a whole show. I mean, that was a long time ago, granted. First three years of the podcast, we still had our training wheels on. But episode 118 is a show about great songs from bad movies. But that's not exactly the answer to his question. That's Okay. Uh, what do you think, Brad? Interestingly, you're going to call up an episode. I'm going to call up another episode. In episode 372, we talked about this very topic, and I got very angry with oh, Drew that's for right. suggesting that Footloose was a bad movie. Yes, uh, I remember. I'm, I'm still simmering, as you can tell. At the time, I went with Repo Man, which I still enjoy the movie. The movie has some great quotable moments, but oh my gosh, it is a slog. But at 90 minutes, it's a slog, which tells you something. But the soundtrack is fantastic. It is just such a great primer for 80s punk. Jen, at the time, repped Bright Lights Big City, which has a fantastic soundtrack, primarily resting on the back of all the club scenes in the movie. So there's all this great you know, second half of the 80s club music going on. Uh, but the movie is atrocious. It's still the only movie I've ever walked out of. Okay, I was in a car. I drove out of it. Okay, well, that's good. Did that happen a lot at drive-ins? I mean, did people like... Uh, worked? I don't know. I didn't really care when I was working there. Yeah. And we got their money. I don't care if yeah, I know. I just kind of curious. Like, you would notice it like you know, halfway through a show and someone's just like... If my car was more comfortable, we might have stayed a little longer. Uh, but a more modern example <laughs> would be Tron Legacy, which has a fantastic soundtrack. And the movie... Let's face it, it looks great, but it makes less sense than the first Tron movie did. Uh, you're probably right. When you said Bright Light's Big City, it made me think of Less Than Zero. That would be another... Mm, oh, that's not a terrible movie, is it? I, I don't ever want to watch it again. Okay, I can respect that. A few years ago, I read that for the first time. I'm the sure it's book, a much better book is, the than book it is, is the movie. The book is dark. Oh, <laughs> it just it makes you despair for humanity. Yes. You could argue that Saturday Night Fever is a great soundtrack, but not a great movie. You certainly could say Under the Cherry Moon by Prince is a good mm. soundtrack to a horrible movie. Okay. Maximum Overdrive, I think, would be another one. Yeah. ACDC does some of the songs, but that's an unwatchable movie. That's one I should have walked out of, but it was one of those freebie ones, you know, that you had a friend yeah. of a friend who got you tickets. Yeah. Uh, 200 Cigarettes. Is one of those movies, not an '80s movie, obviously, but it had, but it had a very '80s soundtrack. It had Blondie, Cars, Roxy Music, uh, The Ramones, Joe Jackson. Mm. 
Joe Jackson. What a chameleon that man is. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's plenty of examples. It's probably worthy of its own show someday, I guess. But we'll, we'll uh, we shall keep hunting for that. <laughs> yeah, we could do a part two to episode 372. <laughs> yeah. We kept you hanging on long enough. I wonder if you go back in history and see how many times we started a series that we only got one episode into and then never did another one. Eh, you know, sometimes the pilot doesn't get picked up. Yeah. Well, we did it. It happened this year or might have been last year when we did uh, Best Instrumentals of the yeah, 80s. that was divisive. We <laughs> should do another one to divide the public some more. People were very angry. Uh, that's for sure. Anyway. We love your questions. Just send them to podcast at SITs.com and put PPTMN in the subject line. Hey, it's time for Stuck in the Arcade. Finally this week, I had a chance to pick the sound effect that everyone would write in and complain about. So Yay. pretty strong about that. Um, it's the segment where we basically, you know, we play a sound effect from an arcade machine in the 80s. If you get it right, you're entered into the drawing for the postal-friendly bottle opener. I know we still have some stuff to give away. We have the copies of the book from Annie Zaleski about Duran Duran. We'll have the winners for that very, very soon. And then I think maybe the next episode even. And then after that, we have a show where we're giving away copies of a book, uh, a big book of trivia. So we'll do that yeah. as well. Lots of books to give away. I hope you guys can read. <laughs> anyway. Pay attention. Here's the uh, arcade sound from episode 613. That's Duck Hunt. A minor quibble. That's a home gaming system. No. I checked this ahead of time. It's, it was an arcade game. Had an air Was rifle. it really? Yep. Oh, man. It's probably best known. I hate being wrong. For the home version. But I'm it was going a, it, full Nate on you now, dude. <laughs> look it up. Google it. I did before the show. Google it, Brad. <laughs> it was an arcade game. Okay. Uh, now it could have been the reverse. It could have been maybe it was a it maybe it was a home arcade and they decided to make it into an arcade arcade game. But no, I believe you. The point remains the same. Surprised we only got so many winners for this. I guess people are people giving up on this segi already. But go ahead and read the winners, Brad. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Winners this week include Cincinnati Joe, Tom Corn in Austria, Brian in Columbus, Carlos M. Hernandez, Alan Titus, Gene in Hollister, Joseph Purdue, and the Tromboner in Lakeville, Minnesota. I feel like Dave Dirt on my bicycle ride every time I hear the Tromboner. <laughs> Into the mud, scum queen. <laughs> yeah. God, we need to do a whole episode on just that Steve Barton movie. Oh, man with two brains. Brilliant. Brad and I had this weird idea lately. I guess we should share it with you that we we might start doing shows instead of like doing like top ten dance movies of all time. Maybe just start doing like pairs, slightly like, deeper dives, deeper dives on s- single topics. If you have a very pronounced dis- uh, opinion on this, please email us. But otherwise, we're doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your opinion is important to us. <sighs> okay, let's spin the wheel. Find out who wins the uh, postal friendly bottle up here. Okay, you ready for me to spin this bad boy? Do it. Okay. Ah. Get a couple weeks off from spinning and get all of that muscle back. Yeah. Things are going to get weird here in the next... I think I'm at the... uh, By the time you listen to this show, I think the wedding will be four weeks away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. It's six weeks this week. I better finish up my toast. (laughs) Cinnamon toast. Mm. Looks like it's going to land on Cincinnati Joe. 
Speaking of cinnamon, don't they have? Isn't that a thing in Cincinnati where they put cinnamon in their chili? Um, I mean that's not an uncommon spice for things. I've never had Cincinnati style chili, so I don't know. Uh, I don't think I've ever been to Cincinnati, so I, I don't think I've only think driven through it on the way, but to Columbus. Anyway, Joe, send us your mailing address, and we'll send you some swag. In the meantime, uh, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery arcade sound. If you know it, email us at podcast at sats.com. Com. That's right, right? Not org. SIT80S.com. I just renewed it as a matter of Oh, nice. Good. Yeah. And tune in in a few weeks to find out if you are a winner. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Aha! Inspector, what have you found? Lane ground this. Plump bin. Rich tomatoes and secret spices. Aha! Here is the key. The libel from a can of homemade chili? Yes, this suspect was trying to fuel us into thinking his chili was homemade. Well, he made a stupid error. Uh-huh. Homemade chili does not have a homemade label on it. Homemade chili, so close to homemade, it just might get you into trouble. And we're back. We have just a few minutes left. I thought, hey, let's say thanks to a couple new patrons. Uh, Jimmy Allison and Kevin Maloney are the latest ones to join the troops. So next time we have a Zoom happy hour, which well, we're in October, so it'll be any, it'll be any yeah, week now. Any any day now. Watch watch the space. <laughs> maybe maybe maybe. Uh, I mean, I say this. This is what's so weird is we we record this, and by the time you hear it, it's, time it's already of, happened. Yeah, it's already happened. Because I'm thinking maybe next weekend would be good. Because you'll still be in New York, and I'll be in Florida, and yeah, it kind of depends. Next weekend is either going to be really busy, or it won't be, and then the next weekend would be really busy instead. Next the weekend after that, I'll be back in New York. Oh, and, and you'll be leaving New York. Actually, I have to stay an extra week. Oh, I'm so sad. I know you would be, <laughs> but you'll be so busy you won't be able to see me anyway. So it's I'm, I, it's yeah. Well, we'll see. It yeah. kind of depends on how things go. Because you know, I uh, want some good deli. I know it's it, literally right around the corner. I had breakfast yeah. there today. I know, but I also promised you I'd make you a lasagna if you if if you came up to the Upper East Side. So, <laughs> well, I'm gonna need to see you in lingerie so I can have lingerie. <laughs> God. That's a deep <laughs> cut. Keep pulling, keep pulling that one out. Hey, before we go, I do have one other thing I wanted to mention. Okay. Uh, something I saw this week in my wanderings around the internet. I know we all love the Swatch from the 80s. Yes. Uh, and they have just introduced what they're calling their 1984 Reloaded Collection. Six watches, I think, that they're re... I'm not sure, honestly, if these are reissues or if they're just new in the style. But they look great. Oh, wow. There are a couple Memphis design kind of looking ones. I'm busily trying to figure out which of these watches I need to have on my wrist the next time I'm on the cruise. I have one. I have a Swatch. I, I never wear it. I got to admit, I'm the biggest 80s phony there ever was. I've, I've been collecting them. I have a couple right now, but I wouldn't mind adding a third to my collection. Wow. So I'm looking at these. I'm thinking probably the Rouge and Noir with the <laughs> red, blue, and yellow hands. That does sound very Brad. Oi. <laughs> I wear I wear like a Fitbit instead of a watch now, and it's purple. I, I won't do that. I just I, I want to have a watch on my wrist. I know it's like the signature of an old man that I still wear an analog watch on my wrist to tell me what time it is. <laughs> I like the journal old man. I do too. I mean, it is who I am. Yeah. 
Well, hopefully you'll be on the cruise and see Brad's new watch. Um, like I said, go to www.the80scruise.com. <laughs> I can think of a better reason to book a vacation. <laughs> then to see your watch? No, man, that's it. That's money well spent. <laughs> oh, well, come, come say hi. Yeah. We'll talk about watches. It'll be great. Ask us anything. Uh, in the meantime, Brad, myself, and probably Michael Aston, we remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. What you Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening. Yeah.